Hello and welcome to the Mage the Hero Described podcast. No intro song, no overproduced intro, nothing to wait through, just talking Mage and related Matt Wagner stuff. This is the show for fans and readers of Matt Wagner's Mage comic series. I'm your host, Kevin Hawkins, and in this episode, I'll be reviewing issue number 12 of Mage 3, The Hero Denied. Before I get into this issue, a spoiler warning, if you haven't read this issue or any of the past Mage comic series, stop listening now and just go read the books. As before, I promise I'm going to spoil this issue and parts of past issues and storylines from Mage the Hero Discovered and Mage the Hero Defined, as well as previous issues of The Hero Denied, completely and totally. So there's your warning. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here, or something like that. Anyways, all right, on to the episode. This issue starts off with another amazing cover. And what we have here is Kevin Matchstick. He's shielding himself a bit and backing away amid a spray of green magic bubbles. And this really purposefully evokes the cover of issue number 12 of The Hero Discovered. Now, that featured a similarly posed Edsel among a spray of green magic bubbles. Story-wise, this single image really promises a lot. In The Hero Discovered, the referenced scene occurs as Mirth, the world mage, having gone into hiding to keep the team safe, has returned. Uh, Edsel has more or less summoned him, and he comes he comes back out from hiding. It's a long story, not going to get into the details about it. So, with that spray of green magic bubbles all around him is either a, a really big tease, or a really big promise that Mirth is coming back. Not a flashback Mirth like we saw earlier in the series, but for real, back, and active in the storyline. The last time we saw Mirth in continuity, as it were, he made a brief appearance at the end of The Hero Defined to give Kevin some guidance and really a big kick in the pants, as well as a fair amount of exposition. Both times this, this occurred in previous series, someone was grievously injured. Uh, in Hero Discovered, Kevin had been poisoned with Grackle Flint Venom, and in Hero Defined, Kirby Hero, one of Kevin's hero companions, had been skewered, basically turned into a big, beefy human shish kebab by the Celestial Bull uh, in that series. Now, when we last left Kevin and Miranda, they had tracked down the Questing Beast to find it resting at the base of a huge tree that was positively leaking green magic from the base of its trunk. So it looks like whatever's coming up, there is some big, great, green magic action about to go down at that tree. And Kevin was thinking about the ways that they can enter into the green realms and not get lost. No doubt, I think it was thinking that, you know, maybe he can get help there. Maybe he can find Mirth in the Green Realms. So are they going to see Mirth in there? Is he going to emerge from the magic? Or is all of this just a red herring and misdirection? One last thing. 
Another great color choice here was to make the background purple, the second mage Wally Utz color of magic. And Brennan's colors just make this leap off the page, and Stephen Birch's placement of the mage logo amid the bubbles, some bubbles behind the logo, some in front of the logo, a touch of Kevin's fingers in front of the logo, all of that helps the cover just pop. Okay, enough about the cover. Let's dig in. This issue continues the upward motion of action in the series as we are really just racing headlong to the conclusion and the inevitable showdown that must come. Events are moving fast and furiously. This issue picks back up with Magda and Hugo in peril. They've made their way up the Red Abyss Pit from their room to that lone plank extending out over the pit from another doorway. But even as they celebrate this achievement, they have been surrounded by these eight weird shaggy snakes with skull faces, and they look very K-horror, Korean horror to me. They've emerged through the walls, and they float to surround Magda, Hugo, and the familiar, the winged bat, purple winged bat, familiar Cleo on the platform. And I think this is Magda and Hugo's first real action sequence. It's short, but kind of fun, with Magda holding off the attackers while Hugo goes to open the door so they can leave the pit. The umbrella that Magda used to fly up the shaft is serving double duty as she points it at some of the attackers, and the umbrella is spraying out some purple-pink magic bubbles, melting some of the creatures. Magda gets a fun line here telling the Skullheads that lunch is not served, and we see that even Cleo, the familiar, is engaging one of the monsters. But the umbrella is destroyed, and fortunately, thanks to the magic glasses that he's wearing, Hugo is able to find an opening glyph on the door. They bolt through the door into an elevator just in time to escape the remaining attackers, and like many cats that like to go hunting and bring back trophies to their family, Cleo has a trophy. In this case, the severed head of a skull snake that it defeated. So among its other skills and abilities, we now know that Cleo is dangerous, a fighter. Remember, Cleo is a fairy that just looks like a cat. It's not a magic cat, but rather a magic creature in the shape of a cat. And there's a really expressive look on Cleo's face, carried by the eyes as the familiar dangles the vanquished skull snake's skull from her mouth by its hair. Now, Magda is calling out, no doubt, you know, narratively to have her familiar join her and Hugo in the elevator, but I can just as easily imagine, you know, a Barb Wagner confronted by the family cat at the family doorstep with the head of its recent kill in its mouth presented proudly trophy-like, a gift, because, well, you know, cats. The trio get into the elevator and close the doors just in time. And the cutaway panel of this elevator and the shaft above it is wild. Now, it might be the wrong comparison, but this strikes me as Kirby-esque with its futuristic, mystic, mechanical look and the crackly red lightning rising above it. It's a, it's a real visual treat. And I want to take a moment to talk about expressions. On the two pages of this battle alone, we get some great ones for Magda. Fiery determination as they're surrounded by the skull snakes, and as she uses her magic umbrella to attack them. I mean, 
Look at that panel. Replace the umbrella with a gun and you have a classic war comic panel with her pose, her expression, and so on. And on the facing page, we get a great look of surprise as the umbrella is taken and destroyed by one of their attackers and the clear relief on her face as they're in the elevator. And that, and that last one especially amazes me considering that the line art is so minimal. But between Matt's line art and Brennan's colors, a lot gets conveyed here. Now, with those magic glasses covering his face, we get less to read from Hugo. But his uncertainty as their first attacked and his elation as the elevator doors close is evident. And for me, this really is a touchstone of Wagner's art across his works and especially across this series, from discovered through to denied. Faces tell stories, and not always over-the-top stories. Take, for instance, the small looks that Kevin Matchstick gives while being hero-splained to by young buck avatar the Steez in issue zero of Hero Denied. These touches, the revealing of the deeply human instead of just capes and kapow, I think are a large part of what helps endear these characters to fans of the series. Indeed, they play an essential role in the development of a character in the next scene, a character who isn't in a position to really vocalize most of what she must be thinking or feeling. And I'm referring to uh, to the Gracklethorn, Carol, in this case. So as we leave Magda and Hugo in their prison break, we join the newly rejuvenated Umbra Sprite, talking with two of the Thorns, Olga and Carol. Now, the Umbra Sprite refers to Olga as her protector, her shield, and Carol, her scepter, her voice and hand. The Umbra Sprite references an upcoming battle, and again speaks of three who must be united, and while they aren't mentioned here, the Umbra Sprite has identified this trio as Kevin Matchstick, the Fisher King, and the mysterious third entity responsible for the Umbra Sprite's transformation earlier in this series into a pile of shadow snakes. As I've mentioned in the past, I'm pretty sure that this unknown entity is Emil, the Umbra Sprite's Grackleflint son. That would make for a tidy bit of balancing for the series as a whole. Remember, the Umbra Sprite was male and hero discovered and had five sons. So a return of a male from somewhere within the Umbra Sprite, who literally devoured him at the end of the Hero Defined, would balance out some of the sexual energy of the Umbra Sprite across both of these modern incarnations. Really, I mean, the Umbra Sprite was male in the initial series, kind of non-existent or off the page, literally, during the majority of Hero Defined, and female in this last series. Um, it would be interesting to see a little bit of what came before or, or the beginning of this story coming back as everything comes to a close. In, in fact, possibly even more interesting is the juxtaposition of Emil and Carol, the two children of the Umbra Sprite, who are most defined in their, I don't know, self-identity apart from the Umbra Sprite. Now, Emil's power was initiative. It, it seems that Carol's may be, I don't know, um, a conscience. Emil's unbridled initiative, his rage at his father's ultimate impotence at the end of Discovered, and his lust for power ultimately didn't serve him well 
as he focused his power and attention solely on destroying Kevin Matchstick instead of pursuing the Fisher King, which is, um, well, kind of interesting. Anyways, I think Carol's special unique spark will manifest in a very different manner, however, perhaps putting her at direct odds with her brother as almost his opposite, if not placing her at direct odds to their parent, his father, her mother. Right now, the Umbra Sprite is preparing to submerge herself itself into the churning void of the Black Fountain. For some reason, the Umbra Sprite says that it must suffer untold torments to enact the magic required to further its plans. Total submergence into oblivion being required to harness the energies that the Umbra Sprite must draw on. Now, this kind of activity was only hinted at in Hero Discovered. Summonings and magic by the Umbra Sprite were usually handled off-camera and referenced as especially taxing. The Umbra Sprite says that this undertaking will leave her maimed and scarred, but that this action seems to somehow ensure bringing the three together. She commands Carol and Olga to continue their quest for the Fisher King, and calls out the other two thorns for their particular shortcomings, Sasha's vanity and Olga's cruelty. The Umbra Sprite also says that there will be more sacrifices, clearly indicating that more grackle thorns will die, that they must be prepared to fight and likely to die. And it's interesting that the Umbra Sprite frames the loss of Alexei as a sacrifice, even though as sacrifices go, it was a pretty self-serving one. But damn, the Umbra Sprite is back and in charge in a way that we rarely even saw in The Hero Discovered. Uh, approaching the Black Fountain in almost ritualistic robes, not even pausing in its instructions as it descends completely below the oily, viscous black fluid. And first the black liquid is up to her lower lip, and then just over the bridge of her nose. And finally we get three panels in a row, of the Umbra Sprite's white hair disappearing into the dark liquid, all the while still talking, and very cool lettering and word balloons as the Umbra Sprite submerges into the inky fluid, especially with one line where the word bubble is split in two, half with a white background and the other half in black, separating what was said above the liquid and what was said below the liquid. Um, it's also kind of creepy cool that the Umbra Sprite can keep talking even while submerged in this weird, one can only assume, very thick, dark liquid. And I can't help but see as the Umbra Sprite's hair disappears into the black liquid, the way that it curls and the oil kind of fills in around it. The last two frames, it looks very much like parts of a shifting yin-yang, like it's making up the uh, the white half of a yin-yang symbol as it starts to disappear into the fluid. Also during this farewell speech, orders and all, the Umber Sprite's complete self-absorption, no pun intended, and self-regard are on display as it says farewell with one last command, my will be done. And the two thorns are left alone, and Carol is worried. There is no idea of just what the Umbra Sprite has planned. 
The Pendragon is approaching, and according to the Umbra Sprite's comments, and what she witnessed firsthand, the Thorns barely have a hope of surviving the encounter. And speaking of facial expressions, her demeanor throughout this entire scene seems to be one of worry and uncertainty, while Olga just looks set and stoic. That's pretty cool considering both have completely blank white eyes, no iris, no pupil, nothing that can be used to further show emotion or mental state. It's all about the shape of the eyes, the mouth, and some use of shadow. Now, no surprise here. Olga continues to be certain about the Umbra Sprite's wisdom and that the Umbra Sprite will prevail. But Carol is continuing on this path of uncertainty, and it, it certainly hasn't escaped Olga's notice, who says to her right off the bat, Carol, don't start. Not rudely, not with the attitude Carol may have received from Alexi, but strong, stoic, like, sis, enough, we get it, just drop it, no one wants to hear it anymore, except a lot briefer and with three words. So we'll leave Carol to her concerns, and the Gracklethorns to their jobs, and let's check in on Kevin and Miranda, who last we had seen had followed the questing beast, as I'd mentioned earlier, to a tree positively leaking green magic, and also present is the imp that was first seen in the Portland Rose Garden. Now, Kevin is convinced that the questing beast was ultimately going to lead him to the green realms, despite Isis's warning that they can also be an omen of doom. And that certainly seems to be the case given the abundance of raw magic at hand, but also at hand is that imp, and Kevin is sure that it means trouble for them entering into the green realms, and how right he is, and for all the wrong reasons. He tells Miranda to disguise herself after he runs, uh, as he's running after the imp. He chases it high into the branches of the tree, and we get some very cool movement panels, including one super high jump in the air, especially for someone who's so scared of heights. In fact, all of that fear seems to be gone, as Kevin is so focused on the imp at first. And as he rises higher, he realizes just how high up he is. But he gets it under control, so good for him. Meanwhile, the imp is continuing to give its dire warnings, or maybe their premonitions. Uh, they certainly don't come off to me as threats. It's, it's running away. It, does, it doesn't want to be near Matchstick. So it goes on with chaos and despair, inferno. And at this point, it's all the way off in a different tree. Now, this imp, I think I mentioned this in the last uh, episode of the podcast. I was saying, hey, <laughs> look at that blue cloak. What if this imp is mirth? I mean, look at all that green magic flying around. It certainly wasn't avoiding, the, uh, avoiding that. And those cryptic outcries that might be, I don't know, prophetic warnings? And the whole Arthurian thing, where Merlin was supposed to be half-human, half-demon. I mean, really, what is it with this little imp? Kevin is intent on not letting the little guy get away, and slings the makeshift energized branch that he's carrying at him, or it. And with a huge explosion, 
Kevin hits the branch the imp was on, and this huge explosion is defined entirely by color, or rather the lack of it. It's white with pale blue outlines, and the imp off to the side, almost out of the frame completely, looking like it's already in mid-jump to another tree. It's, uh, you know, for somebody like me who likes to read through these really quickly the first time or two, just so caught up in the story, uh, it's it was almost easy to overlook. But the force of the blast is so strong, it literally breaks the tree in half, sending it falling to the forest floor towards Miranda. And again, inadvertently, Kevin Matchstick puts his own at risk while running hot-headedly into battle. Now, at this point, Kevin, all thoughts of any fear of heights completely gone, leaps to the ground to protect Miranda from the huge falling tree trunk. And somehow he beats the branch to the ground in a feat of physics that, I don't know, calls to mind Arthur Dent falling to earth in the uh, Hitchhiker's book, Mostly Harmless. Uh, Maybe the branch was slowed by hitting other tree branches uh, on its way down. Anyway, Kevin hits the ground with a thud, tossing off his jacket as he runs to save Miranda, who uh, has disguised herself as a fir tree. And he gets there just in time to intercept the huge trunk and toss it away. This calls to mind a similar scene in Mage the Hero Defined number 12, where Kevin actually has a huge boulder fall on top of him, pinning him, and he's unable to get out from underneath it. It's just too big for him. Kirby Hero, the sheer powerhouse that he is, lifts the boulder off Kevin and tosses it away. Both heroes make almost the identical comment about those feats, saying, that was heavy. The, the great thing about comics is that planned or unplanned, you can get narrative and visual parallelisms that are rarely possible in other forms of storytelling. I mean, you can do it in TV sometimes, and in a shorter, more aggressive way in movies, but the sheer production costs of those mediums and the storytelling decisions that have to be made can limit the latitude you have for this kind of thing. I'm, I'm sure that given the similarities between these scenes, that the parallelism was planned. But who knows? Uh, Matt has often said in interviews in the past that when it comes to writing Mage, it is a zen process. It doesn't have nearly the amount of planning as he would put into another work. But those parale- that parallelism looks way too spot on to be just uh, sheer sheer chance. And this is great. Miranda's safe, and that's what matters most. But Kevin's hot-headed decision to use battle as his go-to solution has two really bad unintended consequences. Consequence one. All the hubbub has roused the questing beast from its slumber. It leaps into the green magic that's leaking from the tree, the portal to the green realms, and it disappears. And even worse... The green magic fades away. The portal is closing, and it's gone. Now, Kevin's first reaction here is anger. He says, I knew it! That goddamn imp! But really, the imp didn't cause this. Kevin did. Now, there's no guarantee that if Kevin had approached things differently, 
he wouldn't have had the same outcome. The questing beast could have awakened and run into the portal before he and Miranda could have entered it. But before Kevin can continue blaming others for the consequences of his own actions, Miranda draws his attention to the second unfortunate consequence. Miranda has recovered his cast-off jacket, and Kevin takes out the broken scrying mirror, his only way to attempt communication with Magda. And as we leave Kevin and Miranda with Kevin completely deflated, uh, he's broken just like the scrying mirror that he's holding. And, And here we get a nice change of pace. Intertwining the storylines of the split-up family members. Indeed, we, we get a strong sense that all of the events in this issue are really happening more or less in the order in which we see them. The comic equivalent of real time, if you will. So we switch back to Magda and Hugo, emerging from the elevator into a sleek, modernly designed lobby with some very familiar looking red paintings on the wall nearby. Magda emerges from the elevator, magical hairdryer in hand. She's looking like a gunslinging action movie star. Really, I mean, check out that pose. Hugo is checking one way as Magda sidles out the other side, and Magda spots a nearby mirror through which she tries to send out another message. Remember, the one in their hotel room slash prison was blocked. But maybe this one will be unblocked. And while we don't get any warpy effects like when she tried sending a message out last time, this is a great panel of Magda's face. One eye open slightly wider than the other, hands held up, I'm assuming doing official magic stuff, as she sends out her message. And on the next two pages, we get a neat trick of visual storytelling. Three simple, full width frames in which the father-son uh, duo of Matt and Brennan really shines. And it's dead simple sounding, but deadly effective. The first panel is a close-up on Magda's eyes. The coloring is all shades of light yellow with a little bit of that circular warpy stuff starting to happen at the edges of the panel. This use of color immediately signifies the magical nature of the message, that we're no longer just looking at her. This, in a way, is her sending. And at the same time, Miranda is comforting her distraught father, telling him it'll be okay with a kiss. Miranda's Heart hero symbol appears above the action, kind of manga, manga style, manga style, I don't know. And it's, it's fun for me, doubly so, since her, it's her personal symbol. And at that moment, the scrying mirror lights up, spilling forth the same yellow that we saw two frames before in the close-up on Magda's eyes. Again, lovely use of color to tie the storytelling together. The mirror is, of course, broken, shattered. And in an amazing bit of lettering, Dave Lanfear has similarly shattered the word balloons. What we can make out, but clearly comes across as the magical equivalent of way too staticky call, um, is something like calls out, kindly ninning. We get a second close-up of Magda sending her message. It's still all shades of yellow. That same close-up of her eyes, only now it's even more tightly zoomed in. And Kevin replies almost frantically. He keeps going on. Miranda, (laughs) over his shoulder, waving and calling out, Hi, Mama! Looking like the two of them are 
on a smartphone video call, just chatting, bathed in the light from the screen. But it quickly becomes apparent that Magda can't hear them. And finally, we get the last close-up panel of Magda's eyes. Only now, the yellow-gold glow is gone. The coloring is back to normal as she gives up with a sigh. Clearly, the mirror was too damaged to allow the message to get back to Magda, or maybe the mirror in the Archeron headquarters blocks unauthorized incoming messages. The sequence closes with two side-by-side panels of the parents and the children, and get rid of the gutter between the panels, place a common background behind all of them, and it would look like the family was together. As it is, we get a sweet contrast between one pair in the dark outside and the other pair inside and well lit, but it's really neat how you're basically almost looking at two things at the same time. You're getting this, the first time we've kind of seen the family together, in a way, for quite some time, and yet still very much apart. At this point, a heartbreakingly cute Miranda holds the mirror, which has gone dark, and she's still calling after her mama. As Kevin, who's now reinvigorated, puts on his jacket, he knows Hugo and Magda are alive, and they're together. He is ready to go find them. Magda, meanwhile, puts her hat back on and tells Hugo that the three of them, remember Cleo, have to keep moving. And Hugo is all about it. With a ready spaghetti, he seems like uh, he's on the adventure he's been waiting for ever since his dad started telling him stories of his heroic past. And again, I kind of wonder when eating that fairy food cake is going to come back and bite him in the ass. It's coming. Something's coming that centers around that choice. As they move forward, we get more of the spy thriller vibe that's been at play since the two emerged from the elevator. Hugo's magic glasses let him see a crackly magic net in front of them, which Magda nullifies using her enchanted hairspray to neutralize the spell. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's very spy thriller laser security beam network that they've got to get through. The two go through, and, uh, and yet again, Magda has to call after Cleo to follow them before the net reforms and cuts the familiar off from them. This is the second time Magda has had to do it. Now, maybe the familiar is distracted by being so much higher up than fairies of its ranks are allowed. Maybe Cleo's just very cat-like in doing her own thing. But it's also possible that we have a behavior being set in place for later payoff. The two check a door, and uh, we refreshingly uh, get a utility closet. But the next room they enter is the big payday. It's the Umbra Sprite's spacious office. We can see the white couch and the chairs facing the black maelstrom painting. Now, earlier in this series, this was huge, but occasionally it has also been much smaller. Back in issue 9, even, it was full size. Um, But in this case, Magda sees a reflection off of it and mistakes it for a mirror, leaning in close to take a look. But the frame has now cropped down to show only the black, baleful eyes staring out of the painting, and it crackles with a hateful energy that sends her back in shock and terror. Hugo, of course, desperately wants to take a look, but Magda puts the proverbial foot down, telling him, Damn it, Hugo, listen to your mother. I said no. (laughs) You know, know, sometimes, sometimes a parent just has to be firm. 
Now, Magda has been in this room before, in issue eight. In fact, in issue eight, it was uh, it was a small painting, so it was it was small in issue eight. It was full size in issue nine, and now it's small again. Um, and this was when she came in after being abducted. Uh, so I don't know what the shrinking and growing has to do with with this image. Maybe it's context. Maybe it has to do with who's around. What is interesting is that when when she was in the room with the Gracklethorns, um, or Gra yeah, with the Gracklethorns, she didn't seem to have uh, seen the fountain when she was in this room that last time, even though it seems that she would have been walking directly towards it as she was being led out of the room by her Gracklethorn captors. Um, maybe at that point in the story it had run dry. Uh, I don't think so, but it's possible. Uh, maybe I'm just overthinking it and should just let it be. She was only in there for a little bit and recovering from an incubus attack. Not likely the best circumstances to be paying too close of attention to her surroundings in detail. However, um, given Magda's encounter with the small, malevolent image, Hugo asks an apt question and raises a great point as the two of them turn to look at the wall-sized flowing black fountain, asking, If that little square's so bad we can't even look in it, then what the heck is that? Now, having spent so much time in this series, watching the Gracklethorns and the Umber Sprite in this space, I really got a thrill seeing Magda and Hugo enter this room, realizing where they were, and wondering what was going to happen in this space that is both full of great potential for discovery and danger. And as we leave them facing the Black Fountain, we return to Kevin and Miranda, pulled up at night to an ATM machine. Now, Miranda, like her brother, is used to her dad's behavior, telling him, I know, Dad, you go talk to the money machine. Kevin puts in the card and is instantly greeted with a hello, Kevin. There's some discussion about how Kevin has used the magic green card within reason, never abusing it, but now he decides he's found a way to force the issue. And he withdraws $10 million. The machine replies with an unauthorized transaction, and Kevin half smiles, looking like he's feeling somewhat satisfied at this reaction. But his sense of minor victory quickly disappears, as the machine tells him that the account is suspended and the card is confiscated. A shocked Kevin is surrounded by a spray of magic erupting from the machine. And we get the pose from the cover in our narrative here. Kevin's surrounded by that spray of green bubbles. But, you see, Kevin wasn't with Edsel when she summoned Mirth from an ATM in Hero Discovered. In fact, she didn't technically summon him. She just went, maybe hoping she'd be able to get a hold of him, she went and she let Mirth know that Kevin was in danger, Kevin was dying, and he came out. To, to Kevin... This must look like the card has been taken and the magic has, I don't know, fled, dissipated. So bitter, angry, looking defeated, he puts his head down and says, Thanks for nothing, mage. To which a voice replies from behind him, Come now, Kevin, is that any way to greet an old friend? 
and we get this wild full-page panel of a shocked Kevin looking at who else but Mirth leaning up against a lamppost, blue poncho, leg wrappings, arm wrappings, you name it. But here's the thing. As awesome as it is to see Mirth returned, something is immediately obvious. If nothing else, it's his hair. You see, Mirth's hair turned white in The Hero Discovered. It turned white as a shock trauma side effect of his extended stay in the barren, pure green realms. Now, nothing says that Mirth has been hiding in the green realms all this time like he did in Hero Discovered. He and Kevin simply parted ways at some point. Now, he returned briefly, transforming Wally Ut into his Mirth self, and then reverted his you know, to his Waliyat persona. Now, at that time, his hair was still white. Now, I suppose over the course of ten years or so, Mirth's hair may have turned black again, like with Joe Fat, or maybe there's some variant of living backwards in time at play, so is this an earlier version of Mirth we're meeting? Still, it seems a little strange that, as thrilling as it is to see Mirth, this is Mage 3, We've always been living under the assumption that there will be a third mage whom we don't appear to have met yet, at least as far as is obvious. Um, So it's kind of strange that Mirth is showing up in the middle of this story or, or at this point in the story without us really necessarily knowing, gosh, the series is titled Mage. Who's our third mage? And with that, uh, gosh, three more issues to go. Four if you count the final issue as two since it's double-sized. I mean, Matt has really ended this issue on a heck of a of kind of a double cliffhanger. Can't wait to see what's coming. Great to see Mirth back in the story. A lot of, a lot of loose ends still needing to be tied up, a lot of questions waiting to be answered. So these next three, four issues just promise to be action-packed and a sheer joy ride. Meanwhile, this issue's letter column continued the Mage Memories letters. It was a real treat to see a letter that I had sent in get printed in the letter column. I shared three of my favorite moments in a letter one from each series. I had chosen uh, the opening Green Realm scene in issue 13 of Mage the Hero Discovered, um, in, in no small part because that was one of the first scenes I, I ever encountered in the series. That was the first issue I picked up, and it was such an amazing type of imagery and storytelling, unlike I'd ever seen before. In Hero Defined, It was a small panel right after Kevin and Magda's first kiss as they turned to catch their breath from that stupendous full-page panel kiss. And finally, in Hero Denied, at least so far, the panel of Kevin carrying Miranda wrapped in his old duster away from the wreckage of their destroyed house. But, uh, I mean, really, favorite moments uh, with this, favorite moments in this series can change from day to day according to mood but those tend to be three that uh 
that have stuck with me um, in some cases for years and in this last case ever since uh, ever since I saw that panel and that issue. Eli Schwab, half of the podcasting duo at Can I Thwip It, also wrote in sharing uh, the first panel that came to his mind from The Hero Discovered, which was Kevin climbing up the pit in the Styx Hotel in issue 15, smashing his hands into the wall to create handholds as he climbs. He also shares his memories of uh, discovering the hero defined and ultimately enjoying seeing Matt and Brennan's work together in the hero denied. Brad Barnes writes in with a great succinct overview of the interpersonal dynamics in the hero defined. He closes on his favorite mage moment when Kevin proposes to Magda and she says yes, or more to the point for what it signifies, she says, I do. Steve Rognus wrote in sharing how the cover of the first mage the hero discovered practically screamed, by me, at him, and how he had to wait for that issue to arrive by mail, directly from Kamiko. He also shares his experience buying a page of original art from the hero discovered directly through Kamiko, complete with a handwritten note from Matt. And finally, Kit Kindred shares a moment that may not be a favorite, but damn, it is an impactful, memorable moment. Now, Kit reads the Mage series every year and says that every time he reads the series again, he has to brace himself for this scene. It's in Chapter 4, after Kevin defeats the Marhal Dogger, when Kevin tells the story of young Kevin and his puppy Queenie. Um, I'm not going to go into details about the story. It is a... It's a shocking, kind of emotionally draining story. And he shares the impact that Mirth's response to this story has had on him personally and professionally as a teacher. As Kit says, there are fantastic moments in this series, but this one is raw, honest, and real. And that's it. Strap in for what's sure to be a bumpy wild ride ahead as issue 13 approaches and everything is coming to a head. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to join me next time when I'll review issue number 13. Again, if you have any comments or thoughts that you'd like to share, please visit magetheherodescribed.com where you can find instructions about the many ways you can get in touch. You can also find past podcasts, links to reviews of Mage Comics, images and scenes mentioned in the podcast are usually linked to or shown in Instagram. You can even subscribe for updates and notices when a new podcast, gallery, or other content is published. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it through the usual social networks and especially rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps other listeners discover the show. If you haven't already, go visit Mage the Hero Described. There you will find the article eight reasons you should be reading mage now share it with your friends let's get as many people reading this series as it comes to its thunderous conclusion thanks and until next time stay excellent